94.7 KTWV HD3 Los Angeles. In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week um, from last week that I'll discuss tonight, this week's book of the week is Crib Sheet by Emily Oster. Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Um, and so that word crib sheet, I remember when I was in school, crib sheet was kind of like a cheat sheet or a little uh, sheet of paper. People would try to sneak into a test with some answers. So I think it's a play on words because it's in a way like a cheat sheet for parenting from the crib from when the you have a newborn up until preschool. And so um, I saw this book and it grabbed my attention and I haven't done a book focusing on actually this part of uh, childhood birth to preschool. I've done a few books on parenting, but this one's specifically focused on that. I was also thinking of my friend Sina, who recently him and his wife Vanessa had a baby boy, Nico, who I'm looking forward to meeting very soon. So I was thinking about him as well when I saw this book last week. So I uh, got it and wanted to read it as soon as I could. So that's why it's the book for this week, Crib Sheet by Emily Oster. Looking forward to reading and sharing with you next week. And speaking of next week, on Monday I won't be doing a show because we'll be closed here at Radio Hamra uh, because of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday here in the United States. So we won't be doing a show Monday. I'll be talking about this book Wednesday. All right. The book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is How We Work by Leah Weiss, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. And it was kind of funny. uh, I read this book and had a busy week and was was out of town for the weekend with family. And because I was with family, I didn't read usually as much as I do on the weekends. And so I had a good amount left to read tonight of the book. And so it was a little bit stressful for me getting the book done in between seeing clients. And it was funny because this work, the book is about uh, how to make your work less stressful or how to feel better about it. So how we work, live your purpose, reclaim your sanity and embrace the daily grind. And um, I was finding myself feeling a little stressed as I was finishing the book and thinking about things, but maybe I'll tie that into the book in some ways. Well, she herself, the author, shares a very funny story because of the irony in a similar way, uh, where she says she was very busy or stressed with things. I think she either 
I think she has three children now. I don't remember if she had one or two at the time. And then she forgot that she was going to be a guest lecturer or guest speaker in a class uh, to talk about, I think, self-compassion or self-forgiveness. And then she got a call or email from the person who she was supposed to teach the class or at their class. And then uh, when she realized what she had done, that she'd completely forgotten, she was, of course, embarrassed and didn't feel good, but then uh, was beating herself up verbally and called her sister and said, they were laughing at the irony of how she was supposed to be teaching about self-compassion, but here she was being so hard on herself. So I actually had a few of those moments today too, where I was thinking, oh, I, I could have been better in the planning, um, but uh, tried to remind myself to have that self-compassion, which she mentions in the book. So uh, that was kind of funny to me, but hearing her story made me think of what I went through as well. Um, but the book is about how we can, in some ways bring mindfulness and not just meditation, but overall mindfulness to our work and really not just to our work, to everything. Because as she discusses, when we try to make this dichotomy and the split between work and life, sometimes people talk about a work-life balance, um, in a way it can make sense, but really it also might not make sense when we think about work being part of our life. It's not like when we go to work, it's a separate person or a separate part uh, our separate life, it's still us. And of course, life and work can blend together. And sometimes we bring our work home and being aware of how we do that, of course, is very important. But trying to make this clear separation sometimes doesn't make sense. Uh, so the book, in a way, focuses on being more mindful when it comes to work. But it can be something that we bring to everything we do, being more mindful. And a lot of times, that's the best thing we can do. We you know, we can get techniques about different things. And uh, even the next book is about parenting. And there's lots of books that can talk about how important it is to be mindful as a parent and the impact that can have. So really, we know that being more mindful is good for any area of what we do. But this book especially focused on bringing mindfulness to the workplace. Because as she talks about, a lot of people think when they hear mindfulness, that means they have to meditate. Or even when they hear meditation, they think it means they have to do hours a day or a week or go on retreats. And that's not something that everyone can do or is willing to do or will try. Uh, but we can all become more mindful, meaning being more aware, more connected to our experience, more connected to our bodies and everything that we do. And that's something that all of us have at our disposal. It's not just people who want to sit on a cushion and meditate or go on a three-week retreat, all of us can be more mindful and it would benefit us to do so in everything we do. Um, so the book has, of course, different chapters that look at different things. So um, overall, it's bringing this mindset of being more mindful and how that can allow us to be at least more aware of what we're doing, what's going on. And I'll get into some of the things we can be in, aware of, um, but how this can make our work place less toxic or one of the chapters is titled healing the toxic workplace and how uh, we tend to think of work as this bad place this place we should not should but almost accept as being a place we dislike and don't want to be in a negative place but it doesn't have to be that um, and one chapter that's very important is about finding our purpose as it's put with a capital p and so when you talk to people about their purpose or making their work their calling, uh, it could sound very cliche and cheesy and sometimes 
something that is a luxury that only some people can do, that not everyone can find a job that is their purpose uh, or is their true calling. And it doesn't mean when you find your purpose, everything becomes easy or doesn't mean everyone should have a job that's such a clear purpose like curing cancer or creating world peace or feeding the hungry. Not everyone will have that type of job, but we do have to find our purpose. And to me, purpose and meaning are the most important things in life. And it's why I think happiness is very overrated. People think that the goal of life is to be happy. And especially sometimes they define this as happiness in the moment, like feeling enjoyment or pleasure. Um, but to me, that's not what we should be striving towards. So really, we want us to live a meaningful life, a life with purpose. And to me, actually, I prefer something like contentment over happiness, meaning you're content and feel good about your life. It doesn't mean every moment feels good or even you're focused on that because you have a purpose, which means there are values underneath everything you're doing that drive what you do. And I mentioned this, I think it was last week, in talking about setting New Year's goals and being less focused on specific goals and milestones. Those can be good, and I think uh, I recommend those as well. But being aware of having values and purpose in what we do or driving our life. And so we want to find that purpose because it makes us feel better, makes us feel less stressed. Even some studies they talk about show that when we do something, it make us, makes us feel like there's less effort when we have a purpose behind it. And so when we have that why, we can overcome any how, which I think Nietzsche said that and then Viktor Frankl used it in his book, um, Man's Search for Meaning, and she used that quote in this book. Uh, but when you have that why, the reason why you're doing things, it makes it so you can deal with a lot more. And sometimes someone's why might be, I work to have money to take care of my children, and that can give their work purpose. But finding that purpose can be very important. Um, and then there's a whole section of the book looking at compassion, and compassion is a big part of meditation in general. Um, also having that mindset of non-judgmental awareness which is a big part of meditation and the mindset you have with, with mindfulness is that you look at things, you observe things, but you don't resist them or fight them or try to judge them. You see them as they are and you observe. And having that mindset can be very helpful both in how we deal with ourselves but with other people. And the good news is um, compassion is something we can get better at. It's an analogy about it, having a compassion muscle in your brain. But it's not that much of an analogy because we know that the brain does seem to have some use it or lose it type of principles. Or another way they say this is uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so the more we do certain things, whether it's activities or types of thinking or ways of thinking or uh, ways of dealing with things, those parts of our brain can become easier to activate. Um, so when we think about creating habits, something's also going on in our brain that is associated with that habit that makes it easier for us to do certain things. And so when we are more focused and living in a mindset of compassion, we can grow this part of ourselves. Compassion means caring for others and the suffering of others. Um, and when we have that feeling of compassion, oftentimes it leads to action, which she talks about in the book. And when you care about 
other people with this feeling of compassion. You want to help. You want to get involved because you feel something when you see someone suffering. And because of that, you can get involved. Now, it's also very important. First, you know, it talks about compassion in general and with other people and how we can have that mindset in the workplace. Even with the coworker you find very annoying, we can try to think about them um, as a child, for example, or think about them in other roles. You just see them at work as the, let's say, annoying person who always interrupts you during presentations or during meetings, but think about them as a father or mother or taking care of someone or other roles of their life and humanize them a little bit. And that can allow you to feel more compassion, make it a little bit easier for you to deal with them, to deal with them in a more compassionate way and make you feel less stressed and have less of those negative feelings associated with them and working with them. Um, but there's a whole chapter about dealing with ourselves and when it comes to compassion being more compassionate and loving when it comes to us. And I thought this was a very good chapter um, because I think people get this wrong a lot of times. They think that if they are compassionate towards themselves, or when we even talk about self-compassion, what that means is we're saying, take it easy on yourself. Don't work too hard. If you didn't do something, it's okay. If you didn't want to go to a meeting, that's okay. It's kind of like, rather than self-compassion, I think some people mistake it with self-coddling, meaning uh, something that parents also do, which is unfortunate. They think they're loving their children, but coddling them by saying anything they do is good. Everything is fine. They shouldn't be accountable for anything. They should feel entitled, which are things that are bad for them and also bad for us to do to ourselves. But genuine self-compassion means I recognize myself as a human being who's imperfect. I recognize that I'm like other people. I can there's a shared humanity i connect with others and i will treat myself with love and respect and also because i love myself to me this is also a very important way i think about it i want what's best for me so i want to become the best version of myself in every aspect of my life i want to work hard i want to hold myself accountable when i do something that wasn't good that was either hurtful to someone or I didn't meet a responsibility. So even in that story she shared about missing um, the the class lecture she was supposed to give her the guest speaking uh, gig she was supposed to do, she didn't say, well, it was okay. No matter what, it was okay. It was, it was fine. She was still realizing she made a mistake and there was consequences and she probably made changes in how she approached things. So it wasn't that she just said, it's okay. If I didn't show up, who cares? No, you take responsibility and ownership for what you did, but you realize there isn't a benefit in beating yourself up and shaming yourself. There isn't something you get out of that. And so a lot of people think that, no, you have to be so hard on yourself and even put yourself down because you have to let yourself know it's not okay uh, and have that tough love type of a mindset. Um, but that kind of tough love where we beat ourselves up when we um, don't want to let ourselves ever slip actually leads to us doing worse because if you're so afraid of making a mistake what you actually usually do is a few negative things including hiding your own errors or mistakes even from yourself because you can't tolerate the punishment you know you're going to get once you're found out even if that's self-punishment so actually people who lack self-compassion tend to do things like hide errors more and we can use the analogy of a parent. If you have a parent that uh, the child knows if they do something wrong, will get verbally or physically 
beaten up, they're going to be afraid to tell them, let's say they broke the vase, the kind of quintessential child example, where the child breaks something. If you feel like if you tell your mom or dad, they're going to really hurt you bad, you're going to try your best to hide that. Whereas if you know they might hold you accountable or talk to you about it, but they'll still be loving and compassionate, you'll be less afraid to say something and therefore more likely to say, I broke the vase. And there still might be consequences. You might have to clean it up or help put it together or make up for it or apologize, but you're not afraid of the response. And so we do that to ourselves. We internalize that parent and can either be that loving, compassionate parent that gives ourselves the space to make mistakes, or we can be the parent that says it's not okay and berates ourselves. And so that second type of parenting we do to ourselves will make it more likely that we actually hide our mistakes even from ourselves. And so you see this happening in companies and I'll get into how it plays out in companies as well, because she has a chapter on purposeful organizations, but it's very important this point that being compassionate to ourselves doesn't mean we're going to make ourselves weak or be soft with ourselves. Actually, to me, it's how you push yourself to be even better is by having that genuine compassion and love for yourself. That means you want to be good. You want to be the best you can be. You want to take care of yourself um, and you want to hold yourself accountable for what you do and you don't do. And so um, because we're at a commercial break and there's still some important things to talk about in this book, I'm going to go ahead and discuss it a little bit more after the break. So I'm talking about How We Work by Leah Weiss, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm talking about the book How We Work by Leah Weiss, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. And so it's really overall a more uh, how we can be more mindful in the workspace, uh, mindful and compassionate. And she teaches a class at Stanford Graduate School of Business um, about this topic. And so the book is, is based on that. So I was talking about how being compassionate towards ourselves is so important and how we at times think, especially when it comes to something like work, no, you have to be hard on yourself and the workplace is no place for these kind of soft type of feelings or um, ways of being. And we value being hard on ourselves and that tough love, but really it can make us much better as people, but also as workers when we um, have that compassion for ourselves and coworkers with other people. Uh, the next chapter was an interesting one related to emotions, which of course is always going to pique my interest, but is titled The Wisdom of Emotions. And here again, it's reminding us how important it is to be mindful of what we're going through. Uh, and as she talks about, people often think of the workplace as a no place for emotions. Uh, we're not supposed to be emotional there. We're supposed to be essentially neutral and, and not have feelings. But of course, this is not possible. We're constantly having feelings in every moment to everything. You're having feelings or emotions about them, and you're always feeling something. And of course, work can be a very stressful place. That makes us feel a whole bunch of things. We have relationships with others, relationships with clients, supervisors, people that report to us. There's so many different things going on. So this expectation that feelings can somehow be left at the door is impossible. 
you're going to have feelings. And as is well, the case when we talk about emotional intelligence, what you want to do is be aware of your feelings and use them as information rather than be unaware of them and let them affect you in ways that you don't realize. Because whether you want to acknowledge them or not, they're going to affect you. But if you're aware of the information, that gives you more power to use them in positive ways and also gives you more information because the emotions themselves are some form of information. You feel something that's telling you something. So you want to actually be aware of your feelings and recognize them as a source of emotion. You might remember a few weeks ago in Mark Brackett's book, Permission to Feel, um, he had a whole chapter, I think was called Feelings Are Information, which is um, something that's echoed in this chapter here in this book, that when we are aware of our feelings, we feel, okay, I don't feel something good after that meeting. What was it? And you might realize you felt slighted or disrespected by the boss or actually something about the plan you guys are making doesn't feel quite right. And actually that might be something important that can give you some information that can help. Um, what was interesting in the chapter also, she talked about how people do different things to try to deal with their feelings, especially in the workforce. And one of the things they do is what we call suppression, which means to actively try to put your feelings down as far as not let them come out. So we try not to feel things. We try not to express things. And a lot of people think that this is what we need to do at work. You should not express your feelings, even in some ways, like I said, try to have no feelings, which is not possible. Um, but try to stuff them down as much as you can, because you don't want to look emotional in the workplace. And she shares research that shows that first of all, suppression so putting your feelings down or where you're trying not to express them is bad for your health, your physical health, with lots of different negative outcomes um, that come from not expressing our feelings. It's also bad for your professional relationships. When you're constantly trying to push things down, you're not going to be as genuine. You're not going to um, actually have as much energy to use because if you're constantly trying to suppress your feelings, it does take a type of mental and almost physical energy. Uh, it hurts even your personal relationships outside of work. And also when you suppress your feelings, you don't just suppress the bad ones in a way you're, you have to suppress all of them. Uh, the analogy I like to use in this regard is that if you uh, put a shot of um, anesthesia or some kind of numbing, let's say lidocaine in your back. I don't know if you can put lidocaine in your back. I know it's used for dental work. But if you numb your back, you won't be able to feel any pain, which some people would like, but you also wouldn't be able to feel the good feeling of a massage, which would feel nice. So you numb everything. And so similarly, when you suppress your feelings, you're less connected to your feelings overall, which means you feel the good ones less as well. So detaching ourselves from our feelings, suppressing our feelings have lost lots of negative costs um, and really don't benefit, doesn't benefit us. Uh, and being aware of our feelings has lots of good things and benefits in lots of areas of our life, including even in our work. Because as I said before, and I'll say again, our feelings, they are information. Now, the other side of this is that sometimes people think when you say emotions are so important, we shouldn't undermine feelings that we're saying that whatever you feel you should act on or whatever your feelings are, they're right. So if you feel hurt by what your coworker said, you can go say something to them. If you didn't like something that came up in meeting, you can do whatever 
you like because of that feeling. And this is not what we're saying or what I'm saying and what's suggested in this book. It's not that your feelings now dictate your action. Oh, I'm angry, so I can go yell at someone. Or I'm angry, I can just leave for the day because I don't feel good. Or I'm sad, so I'm just not going to do any work today. It's about using it as information. Sometimes you realize, oh, I'm feeling really angry at my my coworker. Then you think a little bit, you realize, you know what? I had a bad night's sleep and had a fight with my husband last night, so maybe that's putting me in a bad mood. Or you realize, you know what? I think I'm still upset with something my coworker said yesterday. So now even though he said something that makes sense, I'm still hurt by yesterday's comments and that's still on my mind. And so maybe I need to bring that up or deal with it on my own. So when we're aware of our feelings, we don't just let them dictate our actions, but we use them as sources of information to understand ourselves better, understand what's going on better. And then we choose an action based on all the information, including our feelings, including rational thinking or analyzing it in more um, non-emotional type of ways. We take all that information and we use it to make better decisions. And if we don't incorporate our emotions, we also have a hard time having good relationships, which we need to have both in the workplace and outside the workplace. So we want to be aware of, as the title of the chapter implies, the wisdom of emotions and have them be involved. Being disconnected from our feelings is no way to thrive personally or professionally. Uh, the last section of the book has some interesting uh, input one is related to failure and also reflection. And she shares how in Silicon Valley, it's almost become this very trendy type of thing about failing or failing better. And there's a famous quote by, I believe it's Samuel Beckett about uh, that, about failing better. And this has become very popular in uh, Silicon Valley. So it's ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better from Worst word, ho, Samuel Beckett. And I guess in some ways he was being ironic with that, but a lot of people really like that fail better mantra that it doesn't matter if you fail, keep going and keep trying. And even in that failure, you're learning something. Um, but there is a lot of wisdom in that, that we should not be afraid to fail and fear of failure and perfectionism that can be related to that gets in the way of us making progress that in order to make progress to get better we have to try things that are challenging try things that can lead to failure or mistakes or not meeting a certain goal if you only do things that are safe and easy you'll never push yourself to see how much you can do and you'll never really grow much and so we have to be willing to embrace failure face failure not be afraid to try and also recognize sometimes we think of a quote-unquote failure as this finite type of thing that has a beginning and an end and not realizing that different things we do are part of a process and a journey of our life. So you might start a business and it quote unquote fails, but you'll have learned a lot of things during that process. Some of them things maybe not to do, but also lots of things to do, or you've developed some skills that even though the business failed, but you've become better at something. Um, she shares a story of Paul Allen, who I think was the co-founder, if, if that's the right way saying it, of Microsoft with Bill Gates and how uh, he said they started a company before that trying to track traffic data that failed, but he said they learned so much in the process of coding for that that it put them ahead of others when it came time to develop Microsoft. So um, the success of Microsoft was in some ways built 
on the failure they had before. And so it talks about this book about failing uh, and how important that is, but also within that chapter, it's a lot about reflection. So it's not just fail and who cares and keep going, but that we have to keep reflecting on what we're doing, really take a look at what happened, what went wrong, what we can learn from it, um, take that pause even to really recognize what's happening so that those failures become more meaningful. There's also a chapter on courage, and um, that was very interesting. And there's courage in the workforce. shows up in lots of ways. One of the ways it shows up is in reporting when something happens that's bad, whether it's sexual harassment to unethical business practices or just mistakes that are happening uh, in the, the workplace. And so there's individual characteristics that can affect that. Some people are going to be more courageous than others or more willing to take that risk. Um, but there's also things that happen within the workforce or within a certain corporate culture or business culture that will affect that. Some places make it a lot easier for you and more comfortable for you to express when you're not okay with something or feel like something bad is going on. In some places, there's very much a uh, culture of hush, hush, don't say anything, don't make things worse or You'll get in deep trouble if you disagree with the people who are in power. And so people are afraid to do that. Um, Ray Dalio, who is, uh, I don't know if he's the CEO of is it Bridgepoint, um, he talks about radical honesty and how people have to be very open and honest. And I've heard not in this book, but in other ones, that if you saw a mistake or were unsure about something, but you didn't say anything, you could be penalized in some way by not being proactive about something you saw that was wrong. So um, I think that's very important to have that mindset where it's like we are, not only are we encouraging you to say something when you see something bad, whether it's from your CEO or your manager, whoever it is, we will in some ways punish you if you don't. Uh, to try to create that type of culture. So the culture is very important, um, but courage itself can be an individual thing we think of, of how we want to be more courageous. And being courageous means that we're afraid, but you go ahead and do the thing anyway. So of course, when we think of courage, um, we sometimes think, well, like someone like a firefighter, they're not afraid and they go in, but no, of course they're afraid. They think that it's just more right to go in. And this goes back to the idea of not letting our feelings dictate what we do. So you have this fearful feeling, which is telling you to go away from whatever it is that's making you feel that fearful feeling, but you can override that and realize, no, what I want to do is more important than that. There's something on the other side of that fear that's more important than the fear. And so I can override that and go forward anyway. So it could be in something like being a firefighter and saving lives, or it could just be doing something that you feel like is the right thing, even though you might face some type of backlash. And so there's that kind of courage that most of us will have um, opportunities for. Many of us won't be saving lives in a physical way, but we will have chances to do the right thing. And we can actually benefit from that personally. When we are more courageous, um, research shows we feel better physically and emotionally than when we keep things in or we don't do those right things. So we can um, make sure to try to live a life that's more courageously doing the right things. And it means, again, being aware of those feelings. If I'm in touch with my feelings, I can understand the fear, but go ahead anyway. This is definitely not 
in something that's altruistic or helping anyone. But I can still remember when many years ago now, maybe 13 years ago, I went bungee jumping in Costa Rica and you essentially were standing on a platform and you had to jump off. And then when you look down, you would just see a river with rocks and rushing water. And of course you have to have faith in the bungee that would be supporting you, the cord and the people working there and all that. Uh, but I remember before I went up there, I thought, okay, I'm going to be standing at the edge of this platform and probably everything in my brain is going to be telling me don't jump because in our you know, instinctual or the brain's response, it just sees this steep fall and it doesn't know something is supporting you or can't really think that way. The reaction is just don't go, don't jump because you're going to die. You're going to get hurt. But I told myself, you're going to have that feeling, but you have to just jump anyway. So they said three, two, one. I know I had a slight delay, but then I jumped. Um, but I had to tell myself to override that fear response that was very natural and very strong, um, knowing that even though it was telling me I'm not okay, I would in fact be okay. And thankfully I was, um, but I had to override that. So we have to be aware of our feelings of fear and realize that sometimes we are, we're afraid we're going to um, make a mistake, of course, looking more at failure, but also in different situations where courage can be involved in different ways that we might face some backlash. You might become unpopular at work or among some people. You might upset some people. I was talking to my brother Parham last night. One of the favorite titles I have of books I've read in these past few years was one called The Courage to be Disliked um, about Adlerian therapy. But that it's uh, important to recognize that if you want to do the good things, the right things, you're at times going to do things that people won't like. And hopefully you'll do them anyway, because you'll realize there is a bigger purpose. And this, this is where it comes back to that idea of purpose and our values. And if we live a value-driven life, we make choices based on what we think is right or wrong in a bigger picture, not the smaller day-to-day -day feelings or moment-to-moment -moment feelings, because we know we'll look back on a life that we feel proud that we have lived. So this chapter on courage was very interesting. And then also it ends with the chapter looking at how organizations can be more purposeful um, and have some of these principles of mindfulness and compassion within them, uh, which was also interesting. So this is a good book. Just anything that you do in your life, you can be more mindful, including in our work. Uh, and this, a lot of good lessons and ways of thinking about how you are in your own work, how you can find purpose or try to create that purpose in your work, be more mindful in what you do and be more compassionate towards yourself and others and how those benefits will make you a better uh, professionally, also personally, and also how you just feel about yourself. So really enjoyed that this book, Leah Weiss's book, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity and Embrace the Daily Grind. All right, going into our last commercial break, we'll be right back. Welcome back. So for the last segment, I wanted to talk about um, a reaction to a video I saw today on Facebook. And it's actually interesting that in some way it blends the book of the week from the past week that I talked about today and this week's book of the week. So how we work talked about mindfulness, but also compassion. And then this week's book of the week is Crib Sheet by Emily Oster, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. So it's about parenting and compassion together. And so I saw this video, um, maybe it seems lighthearted, but it was a dad with his 
daughters and it was some something like, kind of like a life hack type of a thing where they were saying that this dad has figured out parenting in like next level kind of a way but basically what he was doing is that his kids were crying and you see a little girl maybe three and then another one i don't know one and a half or maybe four one and a half two and uh, they're crying and then he says okay now it's my turn to cry and then he kind of fake cries and he says now your turn and the kids, in my opinion, looked a little bit almost disoriented or confused by it, um, but in some way stopped crying. And so in the first one, it seems like one of the kids is asking for her mommy, and then he does this crying thing. And then you see another one where it's the mom and the dad together, and the baby is crying, and then the mom and dad do take turns fake crying. And so there's thing of taking turns, and then the baby stops crying. And then so I looked at the comments, and, um, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this too. It's sometimes an interesting, sometimes very depressing experience looking through comments on YouTube videos, Facebook posts, Instagram posts. Uh, and I had a, a lot of reactions to the, the video first, but then also to the comments I was reading. Many parent people were just very much in favor, said, oh, this is so great. This is awesome. I'm going to try this or I already do this. Uh, there were also many people who were upset by it, and I would have been one of those. I didn't write a comment, but I had that reaction. Um, but it was interesting to see what was going on in the comment section, as is usually the case. But to me, the video was almost hard to watch at times because I felt the father was very invalidating of the kids' feelings, wasn't really hearing them out, uh, wasn't making them feel taken care of. Uh, and um, in some way, whether you want to call it a joking way, was making about his feelings to get them to stop crying. And so that's the main theme of what I wanted to talk about in this segment was that a lot of times parents think, and also actually people think if we actually think about it in a different way, but in, especially when it comes to parents, they think my job is to get my kids to stop crying. And if I get them to stop crying, it worked. And I take issue with this phrase, it worked. Um, so it's like either parenting that works or other things that quote unquote work. And always what people mean in, in the way that I'm talking about it is just in the moment it gave you what you wanted. So it worked. Oh, you know, uh, I know how to, I did this to my kid last night and, and he stopped acting out. So it worked. Now, maybe they scared the kid. Maybe they threatened punishment. Maybe they actually did punish. Maybe they did a whole bunch of other things. Um, but they're just looking at the short term. It quote unquote worked because they got some desired short term result, not thinking about the long-term impact and effect it might be having on their child. And that for me is very important to keep in mind. Uh, I think it's very important as parents. First of all, let me add this kind of a disclaimer. I maybe could have put it even at the beginning of the segment that in my opinion, being a parent is the hardest job anyone can have in the world. It is very challenging, very difficult. Even if you're a great parent, you're going to make so many mistakes uh, not just mistakes, there's just so many instances that you can study books and study psychologies and psychology and whatever else you study that you really won't know what to do and there won't be a right answer or it's going to be hard to, to get it right. And a lot of times with things when it comes to parenting, there isn't just one right answer, but there's like lots of approaches. Um, and so being a parent is very difficult. It's stressful. You have their actual lives in your hand, but also their emotional development and physical and every other type of development in your hands. And it's huge responsibility um, and also very challenging and stressful and all of that. So 
wanted to give that disclaimer that being a parent is the hardest job you can have. Um, and so because of that, it's not easy to do. And I can understand that parents get stressed and sometimes all they want is some peace and quiet. And so if they can find a way to get that, if they can get their kid to stop crying, it can feel like a win. And so it feels like that's, it worked if that's what they got. Um, but for me, it's very important to keep in mind the bigger picture. And so I say this, whether it's to ourselves, but also, especially as parents that you have to be able to be very mindful as the book, how we work was talking about and the importance of mindfulness. That's very important to be in the moment with your child, whether it's in playing and engaging or also in these moments where emotional support is needed or their child is feeling some big feelings. You want to be in the moment with them, but you also have to be able to have a bigger picture mindset as well, which actually allows you to feel the feelings and be there with them, but not get so caught up in it. So if your child is sad that someone said something mean to them at school, you hopefully will have compassion for them, empathy for what they're going through, validate what they're feeling. But because in the bigger picture, you know, they will be okay. That can allow you actually to comfort your child in a way where you can contain their feelings, be there for them um, and uh, not be so overwhelmed by what's going on. Oh my gosh, my child is dev devastated. Their life is ruined. Something happened. No, you it won't become this a catastrophic crisis. It'll be something that you can manage, but you're still with them. So you can have both in a way perspectives, both mindsets to some degree at the same time. Um, but so if we make the focus, just stop the crying, then there's lots of things that can work. You can threaten punishment. You can scare them. That might work in that moment. Um, you can ignore them completely even when they really need you they might stop crying eventually and depending on their age maybe it's a different reaction or different effect but if we just focus on worked as in stopping the tears that is a very limited way of looking at what's going on just like with your friends or family if they're crying and all you're thinking is i have to get them to stop crying which for many people is the goal you're very often not going to give them the best emotional support that they need in various ways. Uh, that's usually not the only thing that's necessary. And as is the case with adults, it's also true with when we're talking with kids is that usually we want them to stop crying because of us. We can't handle the feeling. It makes us feel uncomfortable, especially as parents. Sometimes it makes us feel like a bad parent. If we have this association that I have to make my kids happy all the time. So if they're unhappy, somehow it's reflecting poorly on me or me as a mom or a dad. So I need to get them to stop crying by any means possible. And as quickly as possible, that extra pressure and stress makes us go to measures that aren't always the best for us long-term. So as we get older, even with ourselves, if we have that same feeling, you might turn to drugs, alcohol, sex, food, or some kind of distraction pretending like the feeling is not there. I was talking about how bad suppressing is for us as far as physical and emotional well-being goes. That was talked about in the book, How We Work. Um, but we do that with ourselves. We also do that with others. We think we have to just get them to stop crying. Now, sometimes someone is down and they want to laugh. And so you make them laugh and it feels good and they might need that or want that. But our only goal shouldn't be stopping the tears. And so in this video, um, as I mentioned, my feeling or interpretation of how the kids were reacting is that they were almost uh, disoriented or overwhelmed by it. Or another way of looking at it, it, sometimes parents do this intentionally, as was the case here, 
with this parent who really was doing it almost as a joke, but also intentionally, but sometimes unintentionally, if the parent shows too much feeling or becomes too overwhelmed with feeling, the child doesn't feel like they can express their emotions freely because they don't feel taken care of. So sometimes we'll talk about being a container for the emotions as a parent or even as an adult, meaning that I can contain your feelings. So you can come to me crying, you don't know how to handle them, and especially with our kids, we know they can't handle these big feelings, and part of what we're trying to do is help them to slowly learn how to deal with the feelings themselves, but until then, helping them by being that support, being that container. So I have to be able to handle your feelings and also my feelings in order to be that container for you. But if I get overwhelmed with emotion, in this case it was as a joke, but still showing it that way, if I'm crying, well, then how can you come to me for comfort and support and to contain those feelings? There's nowhere for you to go. And so a lot of times kids will shut off their feelings, probably more in an unconscious way. They're not thinking about it at this kind of depth or analysis, but how can I feel safe to express those feelings? So oftentimes parents don't do this as a joke, but really the kid starts crying and the parent is freaking out. I mean, all parents do this, but I've seen this a lot in Iranian families where the parent sees their kid fall and they start freaking out. So the kid is crying, but the mom or the dad is crying or yelling or screaming worse than the kid. And so over the time, the child learns there's no space for my feelings or my feelings are not safe here. One, because my parent can happen, but also two, look at how my feeling is making my parent feel. So it's not good for me to have these feelings. It's better for me to put them away. But unfortunately, of course, this also sends the message, my feelings are not good. My feelings freak my mom or dad out. My parents make me less lovable because it makes them feel that way. And so there's lots of ways we send that message to our kids. And even just this philosophy of stop crying or I have to get you to stop crying in a way sends this message. Now, when it comes to an infant, in a way, there is this mindset of getting them to stop crying because they feel some kind of pain, discomfort, something is wrong, and they cry, and you have to resolve that, whether they need changing or they need feeding or burping or just some kind of comfort. You do recognize that that cry is just an expression of discomfort, and they need you to do something to take that away. But even with that, you shouldn't get so obsessed and focused with getting the crying to stop now uh, because you might do too much or push too hard for that to happen. But especially as your kids get a little bit older, the mindset shouldn't just be about stopping the tears. It's about validating the emotions and being there for your kids to help them deal with the feelings, to help grow through what's going on, and eventually learn how to deal with these feelings more and more on their own. So it's not to say uh, validate their feelings in a way that makes it so that's the only thing that matters and that you're always going to fix it for them. But it means that you show them you care, you value their feelings, their feelings are okay. It's not for you to judge their feeling. And so a lot of the comments said, oh, kids cry for no reason or kids cry to manipulate. And yes, kids can throw tantrums, kids can do things to use their feelings as part of a power struggle. So it's not that you respond in a way that gives them so much power, but you do want to respond in a way that gives them the power to feel like you care, the power to feel that if I go to my mom or my dad for comfort, they will always care about my feelings. And also, um, just like with ourselves, we don't say, because I feel something, I can do whatever I want. Just because our children have big feelings doesn't mean we give them whatever they want 
whether it's breaking the rules that we've set or the boundaries or having them do something unhealthy or unsafe for them, they can have big feelings and you still don't give them what they want. Very often, actually, they will have these big feelings in a way of testing the boundaries. And so it's important for parents and for some parents, this is a big struggle to stick to the boundary or the rules they've come up with, even when the child is having that big response. But coming back to this, the video that I saw, uh, the parent using this technique of I'm going to cry to make you stop crying to me, it was very painful to watch at times. Actually, I didn't like it at all. Um, just, it wasn't just in this funny way. The kids, the look on their face was kind of one of shock and not sure what to do. And it was just like, there was no space for their feelings. And we want to always create that space for them. And we have to be very clear on that mindset. My job is not to get my kids to stop crying. That should not be my one and only goal. And to think of parenting techniques as whether or not they work based on simple short-term metrics or measurements. Stopped crying? Good. Got them to study tonight? Good. You can get a kid to study tonight by scaring them so much that something bad is going to happen tomorrow. And maybe they will study really hard and do well on the test tomorrow. But you've taught them a few things also. One is do things just to avoid some kind of punishment. Two, learning and studying in of itself is not good. You need this fear of this punishment to make it happen. And also three, look at how it could damage your relationship between you and your child if they're now so afraid of you. So try not to be so focused on the short term. Don't think about worked as in if I get my kid to stop crying, it worked. Think about the bigger picture while also being in the moment with your child. We are out of time, so I'll wrap up there. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. Everyone listening out there, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Delakwi. Have a wonderful night. Ninety-four-seven KTWV HD3 Los Angeles.